Support for Under the Radar comes from Wellwithall. Wellwithall believes that self-care is community care. Premium products crafted for your daily wellness, from sleep support to heart health to your daily regimen. 20% of Wellwithall's profits are committed to leading the fight for health equity. They won't stop until it is truly well with all. Under the radar to me means authenticity, not being filtered. It's a window in on the local stories that touch our lives. And there's a huge void in the traditional media covering this new faces of Boston. You may not be looking for a particular story, but when you hear about it, you're engaged. Under the radar means ahead of the curve. It's also perspectives. How does this particular story affect a community or a neighborhood? I'm Callie Crossley. This week, Under the Radar, hooray for Hollywood. On the Charles, the mass film tax credit dodged a bullet in the budget, and the high winds of climate change crises are buffeting Plum Island. Is this paradise doomed? Plus, why travel to Italy? A local man is building a replica of the Leaning Tower of Pisa right in Revere. Later in the show, it's muggy and hot outside, but nothing is hotter than gourmet hot dogs and a white wine from Greece. Our experts are here to talk about the summer's food and wine trends. But first, joining me in the studio, Gabrielle Gurley, Senior Associate Editor, Commonwealth Magazine. Hello, Gabrielle. Hi, Kelly. Gen Doomshus, Boston-based reporter for MassLive.com. Hi, Gen. Hey, how are you? And Seth Daniels, Senior Reporter for the Independent News Group, which includes the Revere Journal and Chelsea Record. Hello, Seth. Hey, Kelly. Well, let's dive right in, and I want to start with... Um, uh, the mass film tax credit, because I believe that the indirect benefits have just not been measured. I think they will now, with now that it's dodged the bullet. But tell us how it all came to be. Governor Charlie Baker uh, kind of made a, a very shrewd move when when he uh, rolled out his uh, his budget plan. Uh, he wanted to uh, increase the earned income tax credit for low uh, and uh, middle income families. Um, and to pay for it by phasing out the Massachusetts uh, film tax, uh, uh, t- film and television production tax credit. And um, so there was a lot of debate on Beacon Hill about this over the last couple months. House Speaker Robert DeLeo uh, was pretty opposed uh, to uh, removing it uh, because he felt, uh, you know, he, he felt it created jobs. And, and Baker said, you know, I, I, I do believe that it does create jobs, but the return on investment isn't enough. And um, the state budget got to his desk this week. Um, and what the, the legislature did is uh, instead of using the film tax credit to pay for earned income tax credit, um, they, um, they, they went to another way. And they decided to pay for it through um, uh, basically el- eliminating a corporate tax break that is very rarely used anyway, which businesses aren't thrilled about. But um, obviously the film product- production industry is pretty happy because they get to keep their tax credit and uh, Baker uh, does lose one in, in some way, but has uh, a couple of other wins in the budget, so he's pretty satisfied. But overall, it's, it's, it sounds like a win-win. With, now, let's, we'll get back to the business part of it in just a second, because you get the low-income tax credit. The film tax credit has another shot to prove itself. And, I, and, I, and as I said, I do believe this time there's going to be some measuring of indirect and direct results. So, you know... Um, that's a good thing overall. I don't. I wouldn't see it as a loss to him per se, even though he wanted something different. Right. He right. made he made a pretty hard run at at trying to eliminate this mm-hmm. because his his argument was that every study has shown that um, the return on investment isn't there. The 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 benefits are too few in his view. Um, and you know he he sent his economic uh, development chief Jay Ash, a former Chelsea guy, uh, made a hard run to to try to convince the legislature to do otherwise. But um, uh, obviously 
the legislature st- stood firm. Uh, and what was interesting about this move, too, was that it, it kind of pitted uh, two natural um, liberal constituencies against each other, unions who were in favor of the film tax credit and um, uh, progressive uh, uh, lawmakers like Senator Eldridge of Acton, who uh, believe that the film tax credit should be eliminated. Uh, so it's kind of a fascinating uh, battle to, to, to watch it to play out in the legislature. Um, and obviously DeLeo ultimately uh, uh, got his way um, in that, and as did the film tax uh, uh, production industry. So now let's talk about the business part of this, Seth, mm-hmm. because, um, you know, wh- many politicians have come through here and cited Massachusetts as a terrible place to do business. Mm-hmm. And even if this is a small thing that really had never been used, does it come back to smack us um, in terms of that reputation, Massachusetts, after all? Well, um, you know, I, I don't know. I, I think that the film tax credit is probably uh, a good for business, whether it's local business or, you know, business from outside. Of oh, no, I didn't mean that. Oh, okay. I, I agree with you. I mean the fact that we took the corporate tax credit to uh, pay for the low income uh, tax credit. Um, is this a smack against business? No, I don't think so. I mean, Ginn has said here that it's rarely used. Um, I really don't see it in that way. If it's rarely used, why not apply it that way? I mean, the film tax credit, I think, was the more crucial point here. Um, so I, I don't think they'll see it that way. I think business can look at it um, in, in a good way in keeping the film tax credit because that's something that's disappearing nationwide, and, and we kept it. And, and I think it will lure more business in that way. Well, you know what I say, um, Gabrielle, who doesn't want Melissa McCarthy, who is in town as we speak, mm-hmm. filming the new Gus- Ghostbusters mm-hmm. with the female cast. Um, but I am just aware that we have that Massachusetts reputation and that one of the, the mantras have for conservative politicians mm-hmm. has been you can't do business in Massachusetts. I think that I think that's true. I think Massachusetts obviously has that that reputation, but I think Baker is being very shrewd on this because he also needs to uh, put a nod to the rising in income inequality uh, in the state, and that is a major issue not only in Massachusetts but nationwide. So someone has to has to pay if he really wants his income uh, earned income tax credit. Something had to go. And if it's a rarely used business uh, tax credit, why not? And I'm sure he can use that as a lever uh, for the opposition that I guess is percolating on, on the business front. To, to say to them, we need to do something for lower income people. This is something that you as an industry, does, you don't use it. So we're going to take it and redeploy the funds elsewhere where mm-hmm. they can benefit the more people. Mm-hmm. And I don't, I, don't, I don't see that as a losing uh, position for Baker. Okay. And, and, I, and I would just add that, that I think the, the what was obviously very compelling to the legislature was this anecdotal um, evidence of of benefit from the film tax credit. Uh, uh, Speaker DeLeo often talked about it. He said, you know, I talked to flower shop owners who said, you know, that we saw more business because of some of these film productions coming here. Um, you know, I personally have friends who grew up here and now are working uh, on the on some of the productions. Uh, I have a friend who worked off on the Robert Downey Jr. movie um, where central Massachusetts subbed in for Indiana, apparently. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's, it does it does have some tangible benefits. Baker's argument is it's not it's not enough to justify. Uh, so obviously the debate will continue. But in Baker's mind, I don't think he'll be too eager to take this up uh, anytime soon. Well, I will add to that and say that I've talked to two businesses that for sure benefited greatly at, uh, on, under the radar, and people can go back and listen to those uh, conversations right here um, on iTunes, and they had tangible um, mm-hmm. evidence of 
of how it benefited them. And then my book club member is an extra as a result <laughs> of that. You Gotta find say that, that all over the place. That's yeah. what I'm saying. All right. All right. Moving on. Um, not so good news, uh, Gabrielle. Plum Island. Uh, you have raised that uh, this beautiful island is at risk for a number of things because of the climate change crises. Um, stuff's falling off in the ocean mm. because of erosion. We got those high winds pelting them. Um, and I did not know that uh, they had a breakdown in the sewer system this past winter. So there's a lot going on there, and it doesn't look good. It it doesn't, Callie. And uh, I think the problem that we're seeing in these climate change uh, issues is that uh, cities and towns are focused more on the environmental impact. Um, If they're not focused on the environmental impact, it's also the insurance, uh, you know, insurance for homeowners and and what have you. But one thing that I have noticed in a lot of climate change stories involving communities is that there hasn't really been much discussion of the the hit to the municipal budgets. Mm -hmm. And the sewer uh, issue is particularly striking. And a lot of people in greater Boston don't, were not aware that this was going on in Plum Island in in February and into March because of our own situation here with the T. Uh, The MBTA was having significant issues. And I I think uh, most folks in Boston were were uh, looking at that and really didn't understand that on the Newburyport side of Plum Island, um, folks didn't have access to uh, toilets. They they couldn't wash their clothes. They had to go to community center uh, to get updates on what was going on. Um, the municipal officials up there are very concerned that future storms, and this is where climate change comes in. It's not so much. Um, erosion is a big problem, but it's a threat of future more frequent and severe storms that may... Which has been predicted. Which has been predicted Mm -hmm. and may wash away and expose the sewer infrastructure. So that's a big concern when you've got a a $23 million investment uh, and basically what is a sand dune and what do they do to protect it? They all have to turn more towards the state. The state is going to have to uh, sink even more money uh, into the sewer system, pardon the bad pun, and it's it's going to be very expensive to protect, along with the the individual homeowners. Uh, that gets into a different issue because you've got tax implications of once these houses are off the tax rolls, what does it mean for a small town like Newburyport? Uh, and it's going to be very interesting to see what happens up there because it's a very controversial what should be done. Should you let these areas where the houses fall? That should you just let it go? Um, and let it revert to, to nature, or do you allow people to to rebuild? And right now, rebuilding is is kind of holding holding sway. So um, again, you you know your people up on <laughs> up at the state house are they inclined, given that to support put more money into a precarious position as Gabrielle has has outlined here, or not? Well, they certainly talked about helping mm-hmm. these folks out. I know Senator Bruce Tarr has, mm-hmm. has uh, t- actually taken to the floor a few times to talk about this. Um, and it's a problem on the South Shore as well. Um, it's it's uh, Cities like Boston are big enough to handle this kind of thing. Um, uh, and they, you know, they have stuff in zoning. They're much more cognizant about climate change and, um, I guess, more up-to-date with the attitudes of, of how people view uh, climate change. A lot of cities and towns, that just doesn't come up as much. Um, and, you know... I, there is a role, it seems, for the state to play to step in and say, like, hey, this is what you guys should be doing and to set some sort of guidelines. What about what do you think, sir? Well, we've had this issue in Revere. Absolutely. Mm. Um, uh, Revere is actually under a consent decree from the Department of Justice for its sewer system. 
And and part of the reason is a lot of it, especially the coastal areas, are below sea level. So you get a big rain event and you have not only water but some other things coming up and people don't have access to toilets or, or their water, or their their basements have, you know, completely inundated uh, their front yards. Um, and what's happened there is they haven't gotten much help. Um, they, Why? They, <laughs> they, they put it all on the ratepayers. That's what they do. Mm-hmm. And it, it kills because especially the elderly who are on fixed incomes, the next thing you know, their water bill goes up twice. You know, it's doubled. Um, they do get help from the MWRA, but it's in loans. They have to pay it back. It's still debt. And at some point, it's, it's the ratepayers that pay. They've gone to uh, – Revere has gone to the federal government. They've gone to the state government. They've tried – you know, they're, they're forced to do all these changes um, within 10 years, and, and no one's given them a break. Um, they, they've been hit the hardest on that so far. And, and it seems like the attitude that I've seen um, in, under the same vein is uh, you chose to live there. Mm-hmm. You chose to build there. You know, you deal with it. And, and the people are paying for it. They really are. So if if by chance Bruce Tarr is successful in getting people to pay attention to Plum Island, that could yeah. then the folks in Revere say, hey, Absolutely. what about us? I, most yeah. coastal communities mm-hmm. could because they mm-hmm. all suffer from this because portions of them are all under sea level. Yeah, and coastal communities are are uh, under a new coastal erosion commission are coming together to kind of try and tackle these issues, but it's all still very new. I think one thing that you'll see is uh, a look towards the Cape because the Cape seems to have a little bit more of a handle on this as far as individual homeowners are concerned. Um, uh, obviously, on the Cape, well, there's a large swath of the coast that is federal federal land or is protected land. So you have less of an issue than, than what you see on the North Shore. But they have uh, pretty much uh, have taken a more environmental forward look at this rather than a kind of the private property uh, look that you see on, on the North Shore at, in Plum Island. Well, I know on islands, the whole sewer system, because I travel to Martha's Vineyard all the time, mm. um, you start mentioning a sewer system, you got a conversation, <laughs> and I'm just a visitor. You know, so, I mean, this is real serious business. And it, to your point, Seth, I could see this with implications all across the region. Yeah, so I talk about certain areas. Yep. So we have to pay attention to that. If you're just tuning in, this is Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. I'm Callie Crossley. And here with me is Gabrielle Gurley of Commonwealth Magazine, Gendumptious of the MassLive.com website, and Seth Daniels of the Independent News Group. Now, moving over to you, Seth. Mm-hmm. Uh, let's talk a little casinos. Okay. Um, so we got suit and countersuit, we know, by the <laughs> by the Wynn Resort, mad at uh, Mayor Walsh saying sure. he defamed them in this yep. whole back and forth, and Mayor Walsh saying... They're not attending to the needs of the city. Mm-hmm. Um, but I'm interested in something that you pointed out, that the uh, BRA has taken over Charlestown Sullivan Square as part of a renewed urban renewal plan. And mm-hmm. this could have implications for the casinos. Please explain. Yeah, well, that's what mm-hmm. they want to do. They haven't mm-hmm. done it yet. Mm-hmm. Um, within, uh, they're, they're seeking their, um, their, the extension of their urban renewal plan, which began in the, in the 60s. Um, so they're at that point. And as part of that, they have kind of inserted themselves into the whole traffic situation in Sullivan Square, which includes the casino, you know, mostly, but also a lot of Somerville's development in Cambridge, too, and even some of the North End new stuff that's going on. And they want, um, they've kind of put it out there. It was a, very much a surprise a couple of weeks ago at a public meeting, which was just supposed to be about, you know, urban renewal, you know, and et cetera, you know, great conversation there. But <laughs> they did. They they spiced it up and, and said, we'd like to take over Sullivan Square, which is not in the zone right now. And uh, they said, we want to be 
We they actually said we've done some soul searching, <laughs> which soul is searching? interesting. The BRA? The BRA. And they said they've come <laughs> out of their soul searching, uh, realizing that they could be a regional planning um, mechanism. And they want to try it on Sullivan Square. They want to be more of a planning agency. And they're putting their, you know, West End past behind them and, and such. And uh, so they believe that, you know, they have state oversight. They have federal money. And they're obviously a city agency. But they're far enough away from the mayor's office where they have some freedom. So we're not sure who put them up to that. It, you know, there's a lot of a lot of speculation. But it does initially seem to make a lot of sense to people who um, in Charlestown who um, have thought about it. You know, maybe they are the right person to bridge that gap because the gap is is just so wide. No one's no one's making it. It just can't be bridged. <laughs> and maybe the BRA is the right. Um, agency to do it. So it's been kind of a surprise. So w- when would we know whether, in fact, they get to take over uh, this well, part? right and, now they're mm-hmm. looking from, for input from Charlestown. They mm-hmm. want to know what Charlestown thinks. And like I said, initially some people are you know, saying, well, it does kind of make sense. Um, and then actually it's the BRA, so there's the other side of people who are saying, what are they looking for? What yeah. do they really want? <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> so um, there's some skepticism, but... Um, Soul and BRA usually is not in the same sentence. Yeah, that was <laughs> a surprise say. too. <laughs> Let me just but say. But they seem to think they're a, a newer um, type of agency. They have new plans. Uh, they're not being uh, aggressive anymore is the word they use. But we'll find out in the fall. That's when they have to get their extension. Uh, it has to be approved by the state. Um, and uh, so um, we'll, we'll find out if that's the case. Um, Charlestown can speak up for it or against it, and, and we'll see what happens after that. Well, you just... One of the things that uh, Seth points out in his piece is that this could be a perfect out for Mayor Walsh and the uh, elected officials um, dealing with traffic. Um, And um, so he wouldn't have to really deal with when he could go another way. What do you think about that? Well, a a large part of his argument uh, of the city's argument uh, in in its fights with Wynn is that that three quarters of the traffic, the casino traffic is expected to go through Charlestown, uh, which is, uh, you know, seeing the the line of cars that were trying to get into Plain Ridge Park Casino when it uh, opened, uh, you know, that's that's going to be a lot of cars coming through. you know, it's. It, I, I think. I think Mayor Walsh is trying to keep as many options uh, open as possible. Um, you know, obviously, a lot of people are asking, like, what's what's his end game here in his in his um, uh, constant fighting with Win. Um, he says he just wants respect for the for for the city. He feels it's been uh, treated disrespectfully by Win and the Gaming Commission. But at some point, you got to have an end game, and the way to get to an end game is to have as many options as possible on the table. Mm. What do you think, Gabrielle? Well, I think the having the BRA come into the equation is a very interesting development because of their Bigfoot reputation. And now they're trying to uh, be more reasonable and actually talk to people, which I think is a great, actually a great development for the city of, of Boston to have this agency, which should be behaving in that way to begin with, to change its its tune and actually work with the community to see if some... Uh, accommodation can be made for the for the transportation nightmare that will unfold if this isn't resolved. Uh, as for the mayor, I think you know Gin Gin probably has his finger on the pulse better than 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 all of us. I, it's hard to know what what Mayor Walsh is up to. This has been acrimonious for such a long time. Um, what what his actual end game is is probably anybody's guess at at this point. 
I wonder if his end game is 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 just what it is right now, which is like you're just not going to roll over me, and I'll make a statement about it, and mm. that's really the end game. <laughs> and it could knows. be as simple as that. You know, yeah. traffic I will mean, undo a mayor. Can it be that simple? I, I mean, mean, it can be. Yes, because mm-hmm. there are legendary yeah, traffic jams. Yeah. Once uh, you know we go forward, is it Florida a few years and when opens its doors and it's gridlock in Sullivan Square? Well, somebody's going to have to stop up and take responsibility for that. So. I know. And so, again, there is a possibility that could really be the case because you went to Plain Ridge <laughs> and they are racking in the ducats at Plain Ridge Park Casino, which is open now. <laughs> they are indeed. Uh, $6 million in its first week of operation. Um, and uh, they're hoping to, um, uh, and I believe $3 million of that went to the state uh, in terms of taxes. Uh, the state gets about 49% of, of uh, the haul, whatever the final total ends up being, um, which uh, which will also mean that the state budget will now have to include the the um, the, the returns from from the uh, casino, um, and it's actually a, a, a slots parlor. They've mm-hmm. been calling themselves Plain Ridge Park Casino, uh, mm-hmm. but it's actually a slot slot parlor with uh, twelve hundred and fifty machines. Um, and, and I gotta say, I, I was there that the, the the first day, and it was mostly uh, elderly women, um, many of them with canes. Many, you know, <laughs> I, it's it's a stereotype, but there were quite a few with oxygen tanks too. Um, so it's kind of one of those things where it just it made real, like where is this money coming from? Mm. Uh, where is this tax money coming from? And it's coming from uh, the line of of elderly women who are waiting for the for the doors to open. Yeah, I, you know, I I wonder, um, Gabrielle, after the other, well, you know, the other scheduled casinos open, not just in Massachusetts, but around in the area, if they'll be able to draw. And again, they're slots parlor. And that's a little bit of a step down from the casino as the fully fledged casino that Wynn is talking about, you know, with the restaurants and the entertainment and the whole nine yards. And I, I, I I still, I just don't know where all that money's, I mean, to Yen's point, a population that can ill afford to be spending it. Well, that's what you see yeah. even at the the so-called resort casinos. It's the elderly uh, who are at the slot machines during the week because if you look at your average week, who's got the time? Mm-hmm. They don't have the money, but who's got the time to to sit at those slot machines? It's mm-hmm. people who are retired. So that there's been a lot of focus on uh, gambling as far as uh, addiction. Uh, fears are concerned. But I would also, you need to look at the elderly and how they are are being sucked into this. Um, people on, on fixed incomes will also, will have, will see a share of their, of their income depleted, probably the people that can least afford to, to do that. And you don't really hear too much about those concerns. And, you know, I have to say, um, Seth, I think Mm -hmm. it's, you know, based on something that Gabrielle said, it can also be some real practical issues about why those elderly people are there. If you are living Mm -hmm. in a hot place with no air conditioning, let's just say that you if you gamble enough and it's some of these facilities, they'll give you free stuff. Some people are, you know, existing (laughs) on, you know, when they're fixed income, they don't get that much food. Mm -hmm. I mean, we're talking really fancy food. Yeah, no, that's that's exactly it. That's why the buses have gone to Connecticut for so many Mm. years. A lot of people have gone gone down there and never gambled. Um, They may have gone down. There's a bingo room there, the infamous bingo room in Connecticut, where they play a couple games of bingo and they get a free meal and they get air conditioning. They get a trip uh, out of town. Um, Socialization. That's a a, a big draw. It is a big thing. And and I'd I'd be curious to see, um, you know, is this money uh, that, again, was talking to the elderly, um, is it just transferred over from the corner store where they have the lottery? Because you see a lot of that there too. Are, are they just 
you know, foregoing the corner store and the Massachusetts lottery to go to Plain Ridge. I, I don't know. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's that's interesting whether or not this is new money or just transferred money from that population. I'd like to know that myself, you know. Yeah, and and there's another thing to be said about uh, kind of getting on that bus and and uh, and going to Connecticut as opposed to when uh, if if that casino gets built, it's going to be on the Orange Line. And I remember mm-hmm. talking to Senator wow. Diane Wilkerson when she was uh, when she was still in the Senate, and she said, you know, my my concern is you know having elderly people just hop on the Orange Line and just go straight to 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 a casino. Mm-hmm. Um, so that that's got to be you know a factor too. The, the Gaming Commission is looking at this, and they are trying to track up uh, this as much as possible to see how much money they have to put towards problem gambling so they are they are trying to mitigate the negative effects of gambling yeah but it's weird to do it after the effect you know sure. we, we've all said but anyway we'll, we'll keep an eye on that all right um uh, gabrielle you have pointed out that city hall plaza is now a hip spot <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's, it's working its way towards uh being trying to be a kind of hipster haven i suppose mm-hmm. uh the latest development in the ongoing saga of uh Beautiful City Hall Plaza beautification, trying to humanize this this concrete monolith, if you will, is putting out some plastic Adirondack chairs, some red and green chairs. Mm-hmm. Um, I know the office of uh, the urban office of urban mechanic that was uh, set up after uh, during uh, Mayor Menino's tenure. Uh, some interesting ideas are coming out of there, there, and putting out some some lawn chairs was one of them, and they have been a huge hit. Uh, they're also talking about having AstroTurf to do uh, lawn games. They've had a roller second year of the Donna Summer Roller Disco uh, night. And one thing I, ha- I haven't seen mentioned too much anywhere, there is a, a nice little gazebo uh, community garden tucked in the back of, <laughs> of uh, City Hall Plaza that is dedicated to cancer uh, victims and it's uh, the Thomas M. Menino Memorial Community uh, Gazebo, wow. which will be inaugurated uh, in uh, at the end of August. It's a beautiful little spot, tiny little spot given the the expanse of City Hall Plaza, but a really thoughtfully designed memorial to people who have uh, died from from cancer. And I think if this is the trend to make uh, City Hall Plaza, more of a a thoughtful, in one corner, fun in another. It it goes a great way to kind of filling filling that that great space with some really interesting little little niche uh, areas, if you will. And of course, there's going to be the new government center stop, mm-hmm. which is also unfolding even as we speak, which some people have dubbed the, the fish tank because of the large <laughs> glass uh, cube that's that's over the entrance. So I think there, there's hope for City Hall Plaza. Mm-hmm. It's been a butt of jokes for forever and a day. But I think if you can kind of spawn these ideas there's there's a lot to be done there and i think it's good not to undervalue city hall plaza as a civic as a civic gathering space Mm. they're also the women's uh world cup was i know they put up a big uh, screen for for viewing and it's it's good to see that happen because boston doesn't have a lot of large open space it's been traditionally the boston common but if that reputation can kind of shift to City Hall Plaza, it's a, it's a logical place for, to have civic gatherings. 
That's my guest, Gabrielle Gurley. She's a senior associate editor for Commonwealth Magazine. You know, Seth, there are chairs in Harvard Square. That's sure. my hood. Mm-hmm. I, and, you know, this sounds so simple, but it's so much fun to sit yeah. there and look around. I mean, that's all I do. People watch. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, you know, and it just it is a nice visit. And you see the other people sitting mm-hmm. in the chairs with you. This is so smart, it seems to me. Yeah, I think it's a great interim <laughs> step. I mean, it's, it's easy. It was cheap. And um, people are using it as long as they... You know, they monitor it, you know, and make sure they take them in at night. <laughs> yeah. they're, all, they're all stacked and wrapped with uh, long bicycle locks. Oh, that's good. That's yeah. what happens in so, Harvard Square, too. Yeah, mm-hmm. no, yeah. it is. It is. Um, there's nothing better. There's nowhere to sit there. I've been there a million times, and you end up sitting on those steps in the, in the summer. Mm-hmm. They are hot, and it's not fun <laughs> to sit on them. So you end up just saying, I'm getting out of here. So yeah. you leave. Yeah. Um, it, it just It's a place that chases people away, even when there's an event there. And I have to say, again, during the mayoral contest, I moderated a couple of those, and Mayor Walsh was always like, we should either tear it down or do something with it. And I'm like, really? Is this an issue? Why are we even talking about this? There's so many other things. But now I really, I'm on his boat. I mean, I'm on his, I'm on his plaza. I agree with this. I think this is great. Yeah, I, I think he actually, he made it onto the cover of the Herald uh, uh, with uh, bulldoze this, uh, with him standing in front of City Hall uh, during the campaign there. And uh, yeah, he, he's definitely, he's voiced his uh, hate of, of uh, City Hall Plaza and the building itself for a long time. But it, it's nice to see that it hasn't prevented him from trying to find ways to make it a more inviting place because it is this kind of hulking beast um, plopped down in the middle. You you do try to rush through to, to, get, uh, to get to the other side, to get to Faneuil Hall or um, uh, Center Plaza uh, across the street. Um, but he is, he is trying to bring some life, uh, and that's, uh, that's a good thing to see. Well, um, Seth, where there is no life but appears to be some at night is mm-hmm. the Haunted Diner yeah. in, in Revere. That's right. I'm, really? Yes. This is just so interesting. <laughs> it has now been, uh, it has been investigated. No, it's called Frank's Suffolk Diner. It's very old, from the 30s, and it's had a series of owners. Um, it's right next to Suffolk Downs. It used to be a, a big hangout and still kind of is for the people who go to the races. Um, but anyway, the, uh, they had a new owner who reopened it about two years ago. And quickly, a lot of her male employees in particular were, were getting a little creeped out, especially when they went in the basement or when they were there alone early in the morning. And um, what, what ended up happening was a series of crazy events happened, um, such as, you know, they would turn the burners off at night and double check, triple check them, and then come, come in, you know, at five in the morning or, or earlier to start breakfast. And the burners are going full blast like somebody's there cooking. Um, one of the one of the men who worked there said that he actually saw an apparition, and it wasn't nice to him, <laughs> and he quit. <laughs> so uh, in the basement, so it all it all brought um, a lot of conversation at the at the at the lunch counter there and breakfast counter, and one um, regular ends up being a member um, of uh, a paranormal uh, club. I guess you know they're volunteers. They just go around looking at things like this. And they have instruments and lots of materials that record things. And they have, you know, some expertise because they've done it. Um, and they came and they, they, they checked out the diner. And, and uh, they had a few weird things that happened while they were there. But they're skeptics now. They're not ready to embrace this. They go there to disprove it, they say. And um, R- I think it's called RTS Paranormal is, is their group. And there's a couple of these roaming around Massachusetts, um, especially in Salem. But this one's local to East Boston mostly. And... Um, so they looked at it. Um, they had, uh, as they were going along, at one point, all the lights went out. That was a little weird. A car outside started uh, 
inexplicably. <laughs> they, had, uh, they had a medium there who said, there's going to be some crazy voices on your recordings. And turns out there were some, some voices on the recordings. Um, it's not class A evidence, which would be, there's no denying it, but they're calling it class B evidence, where there's some things said. There was one um, particular, the, the, it's supposedly a woman, the mother of the original owner who used to get in horrific fights, apparently, in the 30s and 40s with her, her son who owned it uh, in front of everybody. And that is supposedly still happening from beyond the grave. And, and one of the recordings, uh, there was an utterance that they kind of made out, which was something she would have said, which I can't repeat on the radio. <laughs> <laughs> okay. <laughs> we'll, we'll let your imagination So she was, a, she was a harsh woman, and, and uh, from beyond the grave, they got a harsh statement. <laughs> So, so it's it's definitely stirred up some some talk um, at the diner and in Revere. The mayor came out for the investigation to check it out, as well as a number of other officials. Well, people and, are still going there. It seems nobody's been. Oh yeah. out enough. Well, that's the thing there. they said. You know what? It, during the course of the day, the place is so busy that they don't even think about it. It's when they're closing up, or early in the morning when they're taking stuff down to the basement alone, or you know they're they're there and they're in the basement and they hear footsteps above they think it's an intruder they go there's nothing <laughs> the police are constantly called there by the alarm the police go there and say there's there's nothing there and, and the alarm company says there has to be something there but there's nothing there Sounds, sounds like viral marketing for the new Ghostbusters movie. Oh my goodness! I never <laughs> thought of that. Somebody should tell them to go over there. That yeah, exactly. would be perfect. If you got, a, if you got yeah. employees quitting because they've had encounters with apparition, I, I don't know. That's, well, I that's a been little out. strange. I wouldn't have to hear anything. Just tell me, and I'm. <laughs> I, I can't. I can't. Well, even it's supposedly imagine. friendly to the living, so we, we've determined that in the in the new in the investigation that there's no no. Um, uh, malicious behavior there. Just so, so I'm just trying to figure out why why paranormal. Just get paranormal. We're in the town of plenty of exorcists, right? Let's just get <laughs> let's get right to it. <laughs> let's get somebody right. Yeah, let's get it out of there. Well, that's what I'm saying. I guess we have to live and let live. You know. All right. Okay. Well, that's it for ghosts over at the Revere Diner that's haunted. If y'all are interested, that's Frank Suffolk Diner. You can go check it out for yourself. Um, some state employees are have become ghosts, if I may, um, yeah. in terms of. Of, uh, folks uh, leaving and taking early retirement again. Tell us about it. Uh, well, my colleague uh, Shira Schoenberg uh, dug into the numbers of the folks who uh, took that early retirement incentive um, that Charlie Baker proposed. Um, he was hoping to save some money, He and he can uh, use some of those savings to backfill the positions uh, that have opened. Um, the problem is that um, you're losing a lot of institutional knowledge in government. Uh, with the exit of a lot of these folks. And uh, what Shira found out was a good chunk of these folks are coming from um, the Department of Revenue, um, a big <laughs> a big department. <laughs> um, so it's, uh, you know, I think it's something that's that's concerning uh, to to a number of, of good government adv- advocates who say, like, listen, you know, we you know, we, we can't allow too many people to leave just because the institutional knowledge is necessary, particularly when we're seeing a changeover in government from uh, from Deval Patrick to Charlie Baker. Wow. Now, what happens then? I mean, how will it be? Let let me let let me put this a better way. So they're gone. Mm -hmm. And then you have in a moment or two weeks or three weeks or whatever to have a sense of what it means for them to be gone. And either somebody picks up some work or not or they eliminate some jobs and hours or however they adjust. What happens then if somebody says, hello, uncle, this is not workable. You know, we got to have some more 
hands on deck in here. Um, maybe it's not the 98 that left or the 96 that left, but there's got to be some more people in here. Does, is there some provision for that? Well, the, the yeah. Senate the Senate was uh, was very concerned. They ultimately uh, agreed to uh, Baker's proposal, but the Senate was very concerned about about uh, losing so many of those folks and uh, keeping these agencies understaffed. So uh, lawmakers will be pressing for reports from the Baker administration about how these agencies are um, reacting to the departure of all these folks who took the early retirement incentive. Uh, so this will be something that will be closely watched, um, uh, particularly in the state Senate. And that's my guest, Ken Doomshus. He's a Boston-based reporter from MassLive.com. What do you think, Gabrielle? Uh, some more people going to have to be added no matter what? Well, I think as an interim measure, they may go the consultant route. Hmm. There will probably be a lot of a lot of uh, of these uh, retirees who have obviously have new time on their hands and may want to keep their their fingers in in the business as a, as it were that may be called in on a either a part time or full time basis as as consultants and that's one way of trying to keep the the institutional memory alive uh, so perhaps some of these uh, retired workers can work with. Uh, their replacements or step in if there is work that's that's backing up, particularly in a place like the Department of Revenue. And also they're not paying benefits that way, right, that's Seth? That's right. That's <laughs> so they're saving some money all the way around. Very yeah. interesting. Well, we'll see. I mean, it's often in these situations you really can't tell until people get in there and then you, then you know what's happening. Um, uh, Gabrielle, wh- while you're talking, you mentioned this uh, mass health uh, has which the folks that uh, fund um, the Medicaid program have okayed postpartum depression screening. Now we've talked about that here on this show before, but this may be the window in which then other insurance companies look very seriously at this as a condition, a medical condition that needs to get some serious consideration. Well, it was definitely a surprise move by the Baker administration to to push this. The advocates thought that they had a long road ahead to try and convince a mass health to to fund uh, uh, postpartum depression screening, which is basically a questionnaire to to gauge a, a woman's mood at different uh, points during her pregnancy and, and in the postpartum uh, period. So it was a big surprise. But yes, uh, in the healthcare world, once you are covering a, a good section of the of the population, then the question becomes, what will the private insurers do? And I think they will be looking at this to see how it unfolds. Uh, low income women do suffer, statistically speaking, uh, postpartum depression at higher rates uh, than the, than the general population, uh, but. Postpartum depression is seen as one of is seen as a major problem during pregnancy and the postpartum period. So it would behoove private insurers to take a very close look at this. And I think pediatricians and gynecologists and obstetricians are starting to move in that in that direction. Well, I just wanted to put a button on that because we'd been covering this, and I'll be keeping an eye on it. Well, to close out, there's nothing better than a good story from Revere. <laughs> oh yeah, uh, about a little piece of Italy built right there. Seth yeah, Daniels, there's a lot of Italy about... still in Revere, and there's actually <laughs> there's actually a, a leaning tower of Pisa model that uh, one one man who's um, half Albanian, half Italian. His name don't exactly know how to pronounce it right, but it's Jimmy Zajmi. That's the best I can do. Um, it's an Albanian name, but he's. Got quite a property there. It's right on Revere Street, which is well-traveled by a lot of commuters going to the North Shore. And what he did last summer was he decided he was, um, uh, being an engineer during the day, he was going to build a 
a replica of the Leaning Tower of Pisa right there next to the sidewalk where his fence once was. And he took out a fence post and he started. It's at the exact angle, which is 5.2 degrees, that the Leaning Tower of Pisa is. <laughs> He's worked on it. Um, it's, it's, it's made of stone. It's very, it's probably, I'd say, going to be 10 feet tall when he's done this month. Um, it's got bells that look exactly like it. It's 20 times smaller, and he's done quite the research to get it exact, and, and he's pulled it off. <laughs> and it's, uh, it, it gets quite a response. Um, he says most people pass by as he's working, and uh, the thumbs up, you know, the yo pizza, you know, <laughs> you know, it is. Uh, he gets a lot of joy from it. You know, you can tell he's he's had fun with it. Um, but this is just what he does. His yard is full of such monuments. Wow. <laughs> this is just the biggest one, and uh, um, it, it it turns out that um, you know he's he's had he's had fun with it, and the community really enjoys it. The neighbors lift him up; uh, they love it. Um, it's it really it has brightened up the street. It really has. Um, it's it's an oddity, you know, one of those things you see and go, what in the world <laughs> did that? <laughs> well, that, it's brightened up my day. So yeah. let me just say that's a great way to close <laughs> out this discussion. <laughs> and I might have to go by there and look at it. So sure, <laughs> thank you. I want to thank Gabrielle Ginn and Seth for joining us. Uh, Gabrielle Gurley is a senior associate editor for Commonwealth Magazine. Ginn Dupchis is a Boston-based reporter for MassLive.com. And Seth Daniels is a senior reporter for the Independent News Group, which includes the Revere Journal and Chelsea Record. Thank you all. Thank you. you. Coming up, you've heard of blurred lines, but what about blurred wines? Wine cocktails are all the rage this summer. So are fancy hot dogs, really fancy hot dogs, like with caviar and foie gras. Our food and wine experts are here to break down what else you'll want to sample while lounging on your beach chairs. Next, you're listening to Under the Radar. Crossley, this is Under the Radar. And now for the part of the show we call Lanyap. That's Creole for something extra. It's summer and the living is easy. Time to switch out the heavy adult beverages for something lighter in the glass and on the palate. Brose is on the rise. That's real men drinking pink. And forget running after the ice cream truck. A local ice cream maker is churning up gourmet flavors and bringing the creamy goodness right to your door. Our food and wine gurus are here to name-check cool trends for hot weather. Joining me in the studio, Amy Traverso, Senior Lifestyle Editor for Yankee Magazine and author of The Apple Lover's Cookbook. Hi, Amy. Hi there. (laughs) And also with me, Jonathan Alsop, founder of the Boston Wine School and author of The Wine Lover's Devotional, 365 Days of Knowledge, Advice, and Lore for the Ardent Aficionado. Hello, Jonathan. (laughs) Hello, Callie. (laughs) All right, let's get right with it. So... Uh, Jonathan, you've poured a little something for us to sample, and this is a hot trend. Yes. Well, um, (laughs) uh, totally uh, counterintuitively or ironically, while Greece's economy is just cascading right into the toilet, um, Greek wine is having its moment. Isn't that something? This (laughs) um, uh, This is what they're calling the summer of Santorini. 
Um, Santorini's an island um, in the Aegean, very hot, very windy, very uh, rugged volcanic island. Um, and it grows this grape called Assyrtico. And um, it's a white grape. Um, and it's, it, I mean, you, you, you guys have it in your glass. You see that, I mean, it's a white wine, but it's a, it's a, it's a darker white wine. It's not, you know, it's not the color of water. For white wine, it's mm. got um, mm. a good deal of color. Um, and you'll tell me what you think of it, but, um, you know, we think of this as a, as a good white wine for a red wine Mm-hmm. person mm-hmm. because there's a lot of stuff going on in this glass a lot of different layers of flavor and perfume and um and also texture it's got yes. it's got that mm. little dance on the tongue little fizz <laughs> kind of mm-hmm. yeah i love I'm that not fizz but you know yeah yeah you can you can it's, it's got uh uh in in the wine world, uh, the word we use, the expression we use, is mouthfeel. Yes, you know, you it's not yes. like water. You can really feel it. It's got weight, and it's it's really there. It's really I can see this being a summertime favorite for a lot of people. Mm. I mean, it's a hot weather place, so they sort of know. What oh, absolutely, goes, goes well with yeah. it. It reminds me a little bit of Sauvignon Blanc on mm-hmm. the herbally tip. You yes. know, on that. You know, yeah, yeah. yeah. If if you were to think about the spectrum of wine, um, you know, it's between. Sauvignon Blanc and Chardonnay, but definitely leaning towards Sauvignon Blanc. Yes, because mm-hmm. I hate Chardonnay, it's, you know. It's, it's, <laughs> but, it's, but, it, I, but it's got some of the weight. It's got more yes. of that weight that you associate with Chardonnay, uh, but it's still zippy, uh, zippy, bright, summery. I mean, this would be, you know, this is going to be great. Naturally, this is going to be great with seafood, mm-hmm. you know, because it's Especially got that Especially rich good, seafood, because mm. it's got this bright acidity, mm, like mm. salmon or, mm-hmm. yeah. you know, lobster with butter yeah, or something. something. Yeah, something strong. Or even, you know, uh, uh, you know, even pork or veal. You know, this is a white wine that you could do with some lighter um, some lighter meats too the wow. other white wine for the other white meat <laughs> yes exactly um, while we're while you're uh, uh, conventioning about the, uh, the world crisis economic crisis mm. and set off by Greece you can have a little uh, glass of this yeah um, seems to be maybe a perfect complement to new trends in hot dogs you're talking about <laughs> marrying food rich rich food together yes yes so I'm thinking the lobster hot dog yes <laughs> yes well so uh, you know hamburger Hamburgers have had their moment. <laughs> Gourmet hamburgers, we've seen them all. Um, and in fact, one of the leading hamburger makers in the Boston area, Tony Maz, is now turning his sights to hot dogs. Mm. Uh, at Kirkland Tap and Trotter's restaurant in Somerville, he's doing a special pork and beef blend with a house-made pretzel bun and homemade mustard and homemade relish. You know, high-end restaurants are having a lot of fun. And I think they're finding that their customers like that spirit of fun to the point where Monton, which is probably the fanciest restaurant in Boston, mm is doing a hot dog. They did a hot dog, a foie gras hot dogs, uh, sort of between course taste, uh, one of their tasting menus. And a it was such a hot hit. dog palate refresher. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, it was such uh, a hit that actually um, they're going to be opening a new upscale uh, cocktail lounge yeah. uh, called the Gold Room uh, in Montan. And uh, they're going to be, uh, sorry, the Gold Bar, I should say. But they're going to be serving these upscale hot dogs with champagne. Um, they're all 
regular hot dogs. They're not made with seafood, but they the accompaniments are interesting. So they have a lobster roll dog with caviar and herbs. <laughs> they have uh, a steamed bun dog with jalapeno kimchi and miso scallion mayo. So it's a lot of fun. They're having fun with it. Um, and then hot you, dogs with hot dogs with champagne. This is really, this really, I know. This really is the end of civilization. But that's, a good, that's a good that's a good match. Yeah, the though. fall of that is Rome. A good match. Yeah. And then at Bronwyn, which is not maybe as surprising because it's an Eastern European restaurant in Union Square. They're doing, they do a great, uh, what they call a brawn dog on a house-made potato roll uh, with sour broughton and Emmentaler, so, Emmentaler, sorry, cheese. So, uh, you know, there's there's a lot of fun stuff to explore out there now in the summer. Well, you know what, <clears throat> excuse me, you know what, Amy, I was at Legal Seafoods uh, last weekend, and they're doing a big hot dogs special. It's like hot dogs around the country. Mm. I didn't even know about the trend. I was not eating that. I was eating something else, but I right. thought, oh, this is interesting. And a lot of people were ordering it interesting. because they wanted to sample different kinds. So this is, you know, so on trend. Right. You know, and there is a lot happening at the lower end, too, but it's fun to see the upscale restaurants doing it the way they do it. Well, that would definitely, um, all of those dishes would definitely go with our Santorini, as you've des- just described. But I think what's very interesting that you've pointed out as a trend, um, Jonathan, mm. is that men are finally embracing the summer wine, the wine it, that really is summer, but men wouldn't drink it. You know, I have <laughs> been I have been advocating this for years for people not to be afraid of um, of rosé, to stop thinking of rosé as you know white most people you know people yeah. think of rosé as like a wine that didn't quite make it <laughs> you know like when you when you see rosé you say what happened <laughs> you know why you know why can't you be more like your brother you know why why couldn't you be and Callie, i know you believe this about you know that all wines first responsibility is to be red you know and, and, and that's a wine's job that's why wine is on the planet to be red um, but we, we encourage people to think about rosé, you know, not as a wine that doesn't make it, but as the lightest, lightest red wine possible. So when you want to be drinking red wine in summer, but maybe it's a little too hot for red wine, that's where rosé comes in. And, you know, this thing has caught on so much that now there's actually, you know, a trend name for it. It's called... The, the trend this summer is called brosé, right? right. Rosé for bros or like dudes drinking pink wine. Um, you know, it's the summer, it's the summer of, uh, of men becoming confident in their masculinity and drinking pink wine in public in front of other people. And once they try it, they'll realize it's not that sweet wine. I mean, people, I think, because of the color, get confused yes. and think it's not. It's a beautiful, dry wine. Yes, it looks, uh-huh. so, it looks so pretty. It looks so simple. Mm-hmm. You know, it looks like it's going to be sweet and easy. Um, I just wanted to share a couple of my of uh, I like rosé. You know, some rosé is extremely, extremely light. Mm-hmm. You can barely tell that it really has any color to it. But some rosés are really are really dark. A rosé that's made from a dark grape will be just a couple of shades away from from honestly being a red wine. And I really like um, from Argentina the Susanna Balbo. Uh, Malbec rosé. Mm. People love Malbec. Mm. You know, Malbec is a super dark, inky uh, wine, and it makes a really strong, really dark colored uh, rosé that's fantastic. And then my favorite um, Zinfandel rosé, mm. not white Zinfandel. It's mm. not sweet. It's a dry, an unsweet uh, rosé of Zinfandel is uh, from a Sonoma winery called Pedroncelli. 
Oh, Pedrincelli. Oh, yeah. Zinfandel mm-hmm. Rosé. Okay. And, you know, the, the conversation or the, 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 the dialogue is like this. Look, I like rosé, but I don't want sweet rosé. I want dry rosé. Yes. That's all you have to say. Exactly. And then, you, and then you'll be directed into this world of, you know, like I said, these extremely light uh, red wines. So I like champagne rosé, too, Mm, which mm. is very good in summer Mm -hmm. with all these rich foods you're talking about, Um, Mm -hmm. Amy, because you get that little fizz, that that bubbly to clean the palate. And one that is not a champagne, but is a fizzy, a frisson, as they say, um, rosé vino vino verde, Mm -hmm. which is really, and so Mm. cheap. It's, you know, it's like, you know, 10 bucks or whatever. Um, Great for summer, low alcohol. I I confess to also being a person that is uh, impacted by marketing, so let me just say this. (laughs) There are some that are in beautiful bottles, and I like those. So I like (laughs) Sophia Rosé. It's a pretty Uh, bottle. So sue me. (laughs) Something else I like, Amy, I love some ice cream and gelato. So tell me all about this new trend uh, in ice cream. And we are in this town, anyway, big homemade ice cream people already. We are. We <laughs> we have the highest national per capita consumption of ice cream, and we have some fantastic ice cream that's already being made. I mean, I have a lifelong loyalty to Toscanini mm. and Christina's. They're all great. We have some new players that are very exciting, though. Um, there's uh, Scoopsies, which is a small... So these are kind of micro-batch. These are very small operations, um, Scoopsies is a small operation uh, by a young woman named Chloe, Chloe Jankowitz. Uh, she was an Emerson grad who decided to pursue her passion. Um, and she is doing ice creams in, that are sort of out of a f- sort of psychedelic fantasy. Um, <laughs> the, her flavors include pecorino and pear and cinnamon chai cookie goat cheese cashew caramel. I mean, mm. anything oh, you can imagine man. she's doing. And she has an interesting marketing strategy. She's not only selling at farmer's markets in Boston, Lexington, Cambridge, Somerville, but she does a sort of ice cream CSA where you pay $25 a month and they'll deliver two pints to your house, mm. um, which, you know, it's it's an expensive venture maybe per pint, but the ice cream is really high quality and it's fun. And nobody so, sees how much you're eating. Right. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> and then out in the suburbs in Hudson, there's New City Micro Creamery, which um, is uh, is an interesting uh, outfit. They're doing liquid nitrogen freezing, mm. which they argue um, forms smaller crystals and therefore creates a better texture. And they're also doing very interesting flavors. Um, hibiscus Cabernet, fennel mm. pistachio, cinnamon nutmeg fudge, really mm. cool stuff. Mm. And then gelato, which is my personal favorite. Um, there, there was a place, I don't know if you've heard of it, called Murano Gelato up in Hanover, New Hampshire, which Forbes wrote up as the best gelato in the country. Wow. I went myself and actually agreed that I'd never had anything that good outside of Italy. Um, it turns out that the owner, Morgan Murano, um, did study gelato making in Florence under a master gelato maker. She came back here, opened this up. I would go out of, if I was in Vermont anywhere, <laughs> I would swing through Hanover over. Wow. Well, they've opened in Chestnut Hill. Of, of all places, it's in the mall. Yeah. <laughs> this is their second, but it's right next to where Frank Pepe's is going to be when yes. that opens, so I think right. they're going to get good traffic. And it's oh. called Murano? Murano oh, okay. Gelato. Okay. Get okay. Good Murano traffic. Gelato. And they make uh, about 
I think, 12 flavors a day. Everything's made fresh in the morning, and it's terrific. Oh, wow. So, you know, a lot of what we've talked about today is about really customized service for people, and but also casual dining. Mm. And I'm, I'm noting, um, Jonathan, that you're bringing to our attention that there is a decrease now in the specialization in wine uh, experts call sommeliers, that people are doing it for themselves, if you will. Well, the... Uh, <laughs> the, the, the... Um, at least the American wine world is having a little, I don't know, a little crisis of uh, faith this summer. And people are, um, with the expansion of a lot of wine, um, you know, with the expansion of a lot of wine education, um, you know, Court of Master Sommeliers, um, Wine and Spirit Education Trust, um, you know, people are starting to feel like every third person that you see on the street has a wine and spirit education trust <laughs> um, certificate. And people are starting to say, um, you know, in this very connected world and in this very informed world, what does the sommelier do? Hmm. What, what, what's the sommelier do for me, um, uh, the consumer? That I can't do by researching some stuff for myself. Well, a I can't. Bit. Yeah. I can't do for, uh, by researching for myself, or that I can't even do a little better. You yeah. know, um, uh, Tyler uh, Ballier from the Second Glass and Wine Riot. You know, he talks about how you know his audience is very, very young, and he talks about how when when they want advice about a restaurant, when they want advice about a wine, when they want advice about a mixed drink, well, they <laughs> they go they go they go uh, on online. That's right. And we we all do this. Go online. And look at six or eight different sources, and and you know the 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 the, the sommelier world is it's almost kind of seems like it's turning in on itself now that huh. that um, and and ninety nine percent of the time. I and mean, when was the last time you? I mean, I, I'll just speak for myself. It's been well, forever. Expert, it's been forever yeah. since yeah. since I've really eaten willingly at a restaurant that had a sommelier. I mean, ninety nine percent of the time, it's you, the people you're with. You know your you know your server who actually wants to be an actor. You know maybe you can get some help from someone at the right. bar. But you know your people are doing this for themselves, and the wine world's having this little crisis of, of confidence, saying, "Well, you know who who are these sommeliers? What is a master?" You know, you can do party tricks and identify wine between different I, years and things. Yeah. But 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 what what's what's happening in the real yeah, yeah. wine wine world? Yeah, I know. I just think it's 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 a great thing for people to get into it by themselves, and it again mm. speaks to the fact that people are really more into wine, and so their mm-hmm. interest has gone up. Also, people are into to cocktails as well, and now that's a, that's a big expansion. Yes, but we have huge. to leave it there right now. I gotta come. I have to have you guys come back for more. So I appreciate you both joining me today, Amy and Jonathan. Thank you. Thank you. Amy Traverso is Senior Lifestyle Editor for Yankee Magazine and author of the Apple Lover's Cookbook. And Jonathan also is founder of the Boston Wine School and author of the Wine Lover's Devotional, 365 Days of Knowledge, Advice, and Lore for the Ardent Aficionado. That's it for this edition of Under the Radar. Join us next week at 6 p.m. for the stories you may have missed, including Lanya, our Something Extra segment. In the meantime, you can find our show and links to stories we discussed today on the web at wgbhnews.org slash UTR. And listen again on the UTR podcast. I'm Callie Crossley. Our engineer is John Parker. Catherine Whalen produced this week's show with help from Alana Loren. Under the Radar is a production of WGBH.